0: Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. This sermon features Bible teacher Steve Carter and was recorded on Sunday, August 15th. Thanks for tuning in. If you're in the area, join us on campus next Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. And if you're part of FaithBridge online, we'll see you at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Steve. Well, good morning, FaithBridge. How's everyone doing? It's good to be back. My name's Steve Carter if we've not met. And for all of you watching online or at the communion venue, We're grateful that you are here, that you are tuning in. And today, I want to share with you a little bit about my life's work. Uh, For 20 plus years, I've had the privilege to be a pastor. For 20 plus years, I've had the privilege to have people come into my office and literally tell me what's going on in their life. It's an honor. It's something I do not take lightly. But I'll tell you this. I've never had anybody ever simply walk into my office and say, today's the day. Today's the day that I'm going to train wreck my life. Today's the day I'm going to decimate all the good in my life. But somehow it happens. It happens. And there's this one verse that has rocked me for 20 some years. I've tried to figure out what Paul was writing and meaning when he said these words. In Romans chapter 7 verse 15, he says this, I do not understand what I do, which that sentence doesn't work when, in your marriage. You can't just say to your wife, I I, I don't understand what I do, babe. Don't understand it. The second sentence is really human. He says, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Show of hands, any of you relate to that? Yeah. Here's what I want to do today is I want to help you understand why you do what you do. And I promise you, if you can stay focused for 20-some minutes... I'm going to give you what I believe is the clues and the keys to help you understand why you do what you do, why you don't do the things you want to do, and why you constantly find yourselves doing the things you hate. And it doesn't matter if you're a sixth grader or you are a scholar, this will speak to you. And to do this, I want to take you all the way back to the Old Testament, to the story In Esther chapter 3, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Esther chapter 3. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. One of our ushers would love to give you one of them. Esther chapter 3, if you have a small black Bible, it's page 399. If you don't, I can't help you. (laughs) But typically when people preach, they like to start with verse 1, then make their way down. I'm going to do it backwards. I'm going to start with the last sentence... In chapter 3, and we're going to work backwards to kind of understand what is going on. Look what it says. Chapter 3, verse 15, last sentence. The king and Haman, his right-hand man, sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. (laughs) The king and his right-hand man sit down to drink. I, I don't know what they're drinking. They could be drinking coffee. They could be drinking tea. They could be drinking a nice bottle of wine. I have no idea, but what I do know is that the entire city of Susa is bewildered. Now, the word bewildered in Hebrew is the word book. And it literally means to walk around aimlessly wondering, what is going on? So these two, the king and the right-hand man, sitting down having a drink, while the entire city is just going, what is going on. Now, let's just be honest. There's a moment where your boss probably sits down for a drink at home and you are walking around your kitchen going, what was he or what was she thinking? You've probably had a moment where someone's posted something online and you found yourself walking around the living room or walking around your office or walking around your neighborhood going, what were they thinking? And there's probably a moment where you and your spouse are sitting in your living room late at night, having a drink, and your kids are upstairs walking around going, what were they thinking? (laughs) The question is, why is the city of Susa so bewildered? What is going on? I'll tell you. Go with me to verse 13. It says this, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So, So why are they so bewildered? Because a genocide has been decreed. A massive genocide to kill, annihilate, and destroy all the Jews. And the city of Syracuse is like, what's going on? I don't know if you have ever seen the effects of a massive genocide. I've had the privilege to go to Rwanda a couple of times, and I was in Rwanda a couple of years after that massive genocide, where two tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis, in a hundred days, UN records that somewhere between 800,000 and 1 million people died in less than hundred days. And you walk in downtown Kigali, the capital city of Rwanda, and you see the effects. People missing limbs still to this day. People who were displaced as they ran. I mean, there's no joke about a genocide. It's painful. It's disturbing. And it's literally bewildering the people of Susa, which begs the question, how how do you pull off a genocide? I'll tell you. Go with me to verse 8. It says this. Then Haman, again, the right-hand man to the king, said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdoms who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So hear this. You got the right-hand man to the king. He says, there's this group of people, and they're different. Their customs are different. They do things differently. And you know what? You don't need to tolerate them. Now, what's just fascinating is that King Xerxes' grandfather was a man by the name of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was known as the most tolerant. And I don't mean like today's version of tolerance. I'm talking about like true tolerance. And what was so amazing about Cyrus the Great is that this man would go into a country that they would overtake and he wouldn't destroy and kill and plunder. He would take the best leaders from that country and actually bring them into his cabinet. Whenever a war happens, you have to go through the U.N., And when this war happens, there's this room in the UN and there's a cylinder, a replica of the Cyrus cylinder, which was the first bill of human rights ever decreed when Cyrus freed the Jewish people from Babylon to go back and rebuild the temple. I mean, this guy was a big deal. If you actually look if any of you are Constitution people who love it like I do, or the Declaration of Independence, and you study the life of Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson was deeply inspired by Cyrus the Great. And the Declaration of Independence showcases some of that. But hear this. The right-hand man, Haman, is saying, hey, hey, forget your values. Forget your legacy. You don't have to tolerate these people. And you know what? I'm going to make it so easy for you. I'm literally going to bankroll it. And look what the king says. The king just simply says, keep the money and do with the people as you please. It's fascinating to me. A genocide. Some of you are sitting here going, where are we going with this? I'm going to take you even to a crazier place, to the city of Chicago. And I want to tell you about the city of Chicago because if you've ever driven through the city of Chicago, I love that city. It's one of my favorite cities in the entire world. You need to understand, though, the city of Chicago is dangerous, but not dangerous because of the way that you think. It's dangerous because of potholes. And they are everywhere. I kid you not, they are everywhere. You'll be driving and there are these craters in the ground and if you hit them they will do massive damage to your vehicle. And I remember one day I'm driving and all of a sudden I hit a pothole. I think it was playing with sports radio. I hit a pothole and right away I knew flat tire front right. I pulled car over and get out and you can just hear that it's just leaking air and I'm just like, "No." But the city of Chicago has a number that you can dial. 311 and when you dial 311, you can report a pothole. And if the pothole has been reported and the city of Chicago has not dealt with the pothole in due time, they will pay for the damage in your car, which is no wonder the city of Chicago is going bankrupt, but that's another sermon. <laughs> so I'm praying. I'm like, God, please hear the cry. Please, clerical error. I call, someone picks up, I report the pothole. They say, sorry, you're the first one. But then it dawns on me. I mean I'm a, I'm a preacher and I'm constantly looking for sermon material. I'm like, "You' got your own number. I mean, there's 401 for information, 911 for help, 311 for potholes. How do you get a number? Like literally, how many potholes do you literally have? She's like, fascinating question. The Chicago Tribune just did a story on this. And in this story, they totaled up the number of potholes we filled in from January 1st, 2018 to March 21st, 2018. And then she says, do you wanna guess how many potholes we filled in? I said, no. And she's like, you already know the answer, just tell me, we don't have to waste time. She's like, just take a guess. I say 25,000, she says a little bit more, I say 35,000, she says a little bit more, I say 45,000. She goes, one more guess. I'm like, ma'am, you already know the answer, you're like my dad. He asks me questions that he already knows the answer to. I just always know, feel very smart. So I go 50,000. She goes final answer, I say final answer. She goes wrong. I'm like okay, how many? She goes 108,000. 108, 108,000? She goes yeah, if you go to our website, the city of Chicago's website, we literally have a pothole tracker and they literally show their work. <laughs> Those blue circles are like where they're they're working on potholes. So like, this is what they do, water freezes, it expands, and it, like, the, the asphalt doesn't have the elasticity, and so a crater is created, city officials walk up to it and they see it, they add a little bit of asphalt, check the pothole tracker, 107,999,000 more to go, and they go to the next one. But sometimes they come up to a pothole, they look at the pothole and they realize this wasn't caused by inclement weather. There's actually something underneath the surface. Something that I refer to as the thing beneath the thing. And sometimes when you see it, you're wondering like, oh, what, what happened? And sometimes it's erosion underneath the surface. Sometimes it's caused by a, lo- a leaking sewage pipe. But something underneath has caused this pothole And if they don't deal with that correctly, that pothole will become a sinkhole. And this literally happened in the city of Chicago. A 72-year-old man was driving and had the ride of his life. when An entire road, street gave way, and he dropped down two stories. He ended up being okay, but millions of dollars of damage was done. Here's why I tell you this. Because every one of us has potholes. You watching online, you have potholes. You watching in the communion room, you have potholes. You watching here, you have potholes. You who are Texas A&M fans, you have potholes. But I tell you this, though, friends, I tell you this, you got to understand, if we don't have the, the understanding of our potholes, and those potholes came because of trauma, those potholes came because of sin, those potholes came because of things that were said unto us or done unto us, experiences that we had, if we don't get to the thing beneath the thing, those potholes will become sinkholes that don't just affect us, but they affect everyone around us. And friends, this is what's happening in Esther. I don't think any of you are on the verge or wanting to fund a massive genocide. But I do believe that every single day you are making choices that you go, what was I thinking? The good I want to do, I just don't do, but the thing I hate, I keep doing. Why? Why? And it's not just affecting you, it's affecting your marriage. It's not just affecting you, it's affecting your relationships. It's not just affecting you, it's affecting your calling. It's not just affecting you, it's affecting your interactions with your kids. This is important. For 20 years, I've had people walk into my office, wondering, why do I do what I do? And I began to discover, until we have the courage to face our potholes, it's only a matter of time. Go with me to verse 2, chapter 3. I want to introduce you to a new character in the story. It says this, but Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jewish man. And what you have to understand is that because the right-hand man, Haman, everywhere he went because he was second in charge, there was a decree that everyone needed to bow down and show him honor. But look what it says, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's commands? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told him he was a Jew. But hear this, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Do you understand what's happening here? Why was a massive genocide decreed? Because one Jewish guy, Mordecai, would not Tebow and show honor to Haman and because he would not kneel down Mordecai not kneeling down Haman the right hand of the king gets so triggered so enraged that he's like I'm not going to just kill this guy I'm literally going to kill all of them it's just crazy baffling behavior and, and I, I see here and I, I, I wrestle with this because I'm like, why? And I don't know Haman's story. I don't know what happened in Haman's childhood. I don't know if he was small and somehow he felt disrespected his whole life. I don't know if he had had some moment of profound failure. I don't know if in that moment he felt like a fraud his whole life or an imposter. And Mordecai by not showing him honor actually showcased the insecurity within Haman. But something happened because it's not... It's not the way that people seem to act when all of a sudden you just get enraged and you're like, massive genocide, I'm going to pay for it. So why does this happen? Because truth be told, you're going through your day, and all of a sudden something happens and you get enraged. My counselor says, if you get hysterical, it's probably because it's historical. What I'm saying is if you find yourself getting enraged or sad or just frustrated or you find yourself kind of acting in a way that's different from your normal, it's usually because of some historical pothole that had been given to you. And so what I want to do is I want to help you. I want to help you get to the thing beneath the thing. And thing is an acronym. And what I want you to see is T is the word triggers. Triggers are the setup that sets you off. All right, you're going through your day and all of a sudden you're just listening to some worship music. You've got your coffee, you're singing, blessed be the name of the Lord. You're just driving. You got your kids in the back seat. They're listening to you sing off key, but you're just feeling it. And then all of a sudden some car just cuts you off and then something comes out of your mouth. That's not blessed be the name. (laughs) And you're like, why did I say that? What happened there? You got triggered. And every day, somebody gets close to your potholes. And without even knowing it, they drive over your potholes. And all of a sudden, all of this energy is within you and it's got to go somewhere. See, I remember a number of years ago, I came home and I was so frustrated. Someone had done it again. I was in a meeting, they minimized my idea, they minimized my thought, the tone was just so demeaning and I was frustrated. And so I'm looking for a little bit of spousal support. I was looking for her to have my back. I share this experience, and you know what she says to me? Isn't God so kind? Which I'm like, what do you mean he's so kind? I need you to have my back Be mad at that dude. And she's like, God's so kind. Why is God so kind? God's so kind that he keeps bringing people into your life who remind you of someone who deeply wounded you. Until you have the courageous curiosity to get after that, your life will always be held in check. That's who I married, friends. (laughs) And I'm like, what in the world? And she's like, Steve, if you don't deal with this, you're going to keep having these people come into your life. They're going to trigger you, and you're going to go somewhere. And what I found in 20 years of doing pastoral ministry, there is four places that people tend to go when they get triggered. The first, H, is hideouts. And this is the metaphorical places we go to escape our triggers or escape the pain in our story. And the truth is, we all do this. We do this in socially acceptable ways. We do this in socially unacceptable ways. This takes us back to Genesis 3. Man and the woman taking... Of the fruit, they feel shame, they feel anxiety. What do they do? They make some clothes. Then all of a sudden they hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What do they do? They go and hide. It's the first game of hide and seek and God's looking after them and he's seeking them and he's calling out, where are you? And says Genesis 3, all we've been doing is hiding and finding hideouts whenever we get triggered. The truth is every one of us, we're addicts. We are. You might be saying, no, no, you don't understand. I don't don't have an addiction problem. I don't don't, don't have an addiction problem. I don't don't abuse alcohol. I don't abuse opioids. I don't don't, don't, don't have that. The truth is we all go to places to hide out. I remember when the, the Hebrew people were at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses is on top talking with God. He's been up there for a little bit. And the top is like clouded and crowded with clouds and lightning and thunder and the people are a little bit nervous and so all of a sudden they don't know what to do with their anxiety they don't know what to do with their fear they don't know what to do with their worry and so some of them start to like touch their ears and they're like there's some gold here and there's some gold here maybe maybe what we should do maybe what we should do we should like literally take all of this and let's form it to an idol and they do and what's amazing is what do they use this idol for, it's not to worship. It's to place their pain and their fear and their worry on. And we do this with work. We do this with Netflix. We do this with Instagram. We do this in so many socially acceptable ways. We do this by going and buying things. And Amazon understands that you all are going to be triggered and you're going to go to a hideout. And that's why they created the one-click button. (laughs) Because you're like, a lawn gnome. Yep, that's what I need. And then you're like, what am I doing? And by the time you can try to return it, it's already delivered to your house. (laughs) We all have these hideouts. And again, some of them are socially unacceptable. In 2020, you've heard me say this, alcohol sales were crazy. Opioid usage, crazy. Pornography, crazy. Crazy. In many ways, we were all looking for some place to place our fear and worry and uncertainty. That's a hideout. And again, some of us, it's just work. Some of it's just staying busy. But we all have these places, and Tim Keller would call this a counterfeit God, or in biblical language, it would be an idol. Something that we are placing our sadness or pain on. The second place when people get triggered that they tend to go to is to insecurities. And insecurities are the false stories we create about ourselves. And you know what this is like. You get triggered and all of a sudden in that meeting you're like, I'm just not good enough. And all of a sudden it's like a shame storm just starts to rain over you. And you're like, oh man, what's wrong with me? And it's like these old tapes start to play. You'll never be as good as your sister. You'll never be as good as your brother. Like They, they figured you out. You actually think you can do this? And it's like these lies are penetrating our heart. And we are neglecting and forgetting that we were created in the image of God. We were created for a purpose. We were created for meaning. It's just the sound and the tapes of the lies are just coming over and over and over and over. And so what do we do? We just power down. And I just watched so many Christ followers just going through life, just powered down. It's not freedom that's controlling them, it's shame. But sometimes, out of insecurity, people feel like they're losing control of the circumstance or the situation. They don't power down, they power up. And they try to regain. And all of a sudden, they start attacking those people that are in their life or in the kitchen or in the marketplace. And there's this whole abuse of power. But in this moment, you can step back and see, oh, you just got triggered. And your insecurity is coming out in power and pride. See, some of us, we power down. Some of us, we power up when we get triggered. The third place that I find that so many people go when they get triggered is to narratives. And these are the false stories we create about others. And this is what Twitter, talk radio, Facebook, the news, they are making billions and billions and billions of dollars trying to get you to see what divides you With another rather than what unites you and for many of us we take the bait and we see someone post something on Facebook and somehow we're like how dare they and then we start to type and we don't just type in response we start to type things about that person and we just take a little shot at them and then they take a shot at us and we take a shot at them and this is what happens It's a junior high cafeteria online. And here's what sin is, friends. Sin isn't just missing the mark like many people will teach. Sin means to live less than what God intended. And when we sin against God, we are choosing to live less than what he intended for each of us. But when we sin against a brother or sister, we are sinning because we are saying or making or creating something that is making them feel less than. And when they feel less than, they're gonna be triggered and they're gonna try and make you feel even lesser. And this is what happens on a junior high campus, what happens online, what happens in media, what happens in the marketplace, what happens between nations. And you can play it all back to one person being triggered and not knowing how to deal with this pothole so it becomes a sinkhole in the school The home, the marketplace, the county, the state, the country, the world. But I'm here to tell you that there's another place you can go. When you get triggered, you don't have to go run to some other counterfeit God. You don't have to think crazy stories about yourself or create crazy stories about others. You actually can lean in to the beauty of grace. And grace, and I love what John Wesley talks about, He says that there's three stages of grace, one of his foremost sermons that he ever gave. And the third stage of grace is what he referred to as sanctifying grace. And this is the kind of grace that is this ongoing process of spiritual power that makes you whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. And the truth is, grace, my friends, isn't just trying to find you. You know what grace wants to do? Grace wants to find you out. It wants to find all of those potholes out. And not just to expose them and be like, look at this guy. Not that. It wants to find you out so that it can do what grace wants to do, which is to make you whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. And what's so amazing is so many of us, we don't understand what we do because when we get triggered, we just have gone through these familiar patterns. We've run to this hideout. We've thought this lie about ourselves based in insecurity. We've created these stories about our family, about our spouse, about a friend, about our boss, about another person. And what if, just what if, what if we took self-responsibility? What if We just didn't go through life going, I don't understand why I do what I do. The good I want to do, I do not do, but the thing I hate, I do. What if we actually said, no, 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 I'm actually going to get to the thing beneath the thing, and I'm going to start to be really, really honest with what triggers me. You got to ask yourself this question, friends, what triggers you? And be really, really honest about this. Is what triggers you something where you feel out of control? What triggers you, maybe where you feel like someone might abandon you. What triggers you is when you feel like you are less than. What triggers you is where you feel surprised. What triggers you is maybe something where you feel like you failed. For me, I don't like being put on the spot. I don't do really well with it. And what's amazing is The older I get, the more I'm put on the spot. And I get really, really nervous. And when I get nervous, then all of a sudden the insecurity starts coming. I I don't like being out of control. When I get out of control, I tend to create narratives about other people. Why are they putting me out of control? And I don't like to fail, and I don't like to be bored. And I don't know how to sit with my sadness. And whenever someone gets close to one of those three potholes, I have gone to hideouts. And they've been things that I'm not proud of. And friends, until I had the courage and the the, the curiosity to go, what triggers you? to really begin to, to look at, oh, and not just look at name, oh, when I'm surprised or when I fail or when I'm out of control, but to ask myself, what's underneath that? And there's typically some childhood wound, there's some moment in your story that until you have the courageous curiosity to get after that, you're gonna keep making decisions that you hate and keep saying things doing things, seeing things, going to places that aren't best for you and aren't best for your integrity. My wife and I, we always say this, you do what you want to do, the real question is, why did you want that? So you do what you want to do, the real question is, what were you hoping for, looking for, searching for, seeking out? And until you can literally understand why you do what you do, You'll keep making decisions like Haman did, like I did, like so many people in the text who didn't choose God's best. What triggers you? Second question is, where do you go? you got to understand this. If you've got a family, you should be talking about this at the table. Hey, when you get triggered, Dad, where do you go? Sometimes I go to work. Sometimes I go just on my phone to email because I can control that. Sometimes I, I, I go and I just binge watch an entire football game or entire Netflix series in one night. For some of us, it's not just to one glass of wine, it's to multiple glasses. But until we can really be honest and human about that, we'll like long to actually grow, except we're not putting in the work to understand why we do what we do. And what I've found is sanctifying grace, the grace that is available, that God sent his son so that we could experience, doesn't want you to go through life doing things, making decisions that you hate. He actually believes that grace can make you whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. That doesn't just transform you and protect and preserve you, but also you are used to bless others. Friends, let's be the kind of people who get to the thing beneath the thing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you for this incredible church. I I know that for some of us, we can probably look at the past week and start to play it back and look at moments where we got triggered. Why did I say that? Why'd I escape here? Why'd I go and do that? It's often so just connected to the pain that many of us have experienced many, many years ago. And God, what's so amazing is you're not just trying to get us into heaven, you're actually believing that heaven starts right here, right now, when we say yes to your grace that the work of what you want to do is have heaven invade our hearts and our minds and our potholes so that we can experience what full freedom and truth and peace looks like in you. And so I'm just praying. I'm praying for some courageous curiosity. There's some people probably watching online. And as they watch online, they're probably thinking, man, why did I say that? I'm praying that it would be curiosity, not shame. An invitation for grace, For those in the communion venue, just praying that you would just speak to them. We're here in this room right now. As we sing this song, I pray that these words would just minister to our hearts, that we can be honest and human about what triggers us, what's underneath that, and where we go. And I pray, I pray, I pray that we can decide right here, right now. No more counterfeits, no more faulty stories about ourselves or others but let's say yes to the goodness of your sanctifying grace. Make us whole, make us holy, make us healthy for your glory. And all God's people said, amen.